The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I would direct your attention to John chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 35 to 47. John chapter 6, verses 35 to 47. On this Memorial Day weekend, I think it's obvious to everyone that our nation is in a very dark place and a very sad place. And we're at a place where many who gave their lives in defense of this country probably never expected that we would be. And the only answer to our problems as a country is Christ. You, you can't legislate the heart, and the only way to combat evil, which is what we've seen with the Buffalo shooting and, and now this in Uvalde, is the truth. And for families to be transformed and lives to be transformed with the truth. And that's exactly what Jesus is addressing here in John chapter 6. So look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. This is the inspired and holy Word of God. In this section of The Bread of Life Discourse, Jesus teaches a very important principle related to the doctrine of 
eternal security, the eternal security of the believer. And that is the doctrine that once you are truly born again and believe the gospel, that you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation once you are a true Christian. And this doctrine is absolutely vital for you to understand in your own spiritual life because this really is one of the grounds of your assurance, right? How do you know that you will be a Christian tomorrow? How do you know that in a year or two years you're not going to become a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness? How do you know? How do you know that we're not going to see you driving around uh, in one of uh, those cars with all the bumper sticker on, stickers on the back, the coexist one, and the, you know, the Darwin fish swallowing the Jesus fish. How do we know that's not going to be you? Well, we know because the Bible teaches the doctrine of eternal security. And what Jesus lays out here is an important principle of how that doctrine works, and it's the principle of sovereignty and security the principle of sovereignty and security. Now, I'm going to explain that momentarily, but first I want to look at the context briefly with you. Remember, this is a confrontation that Jesus is having with false disciples in the synagogue at Capernaum. Many of these false disciples were present across the Sea of Galilee when Jesus multiplied the bread and fish and probably fed over 20,000 people. Those same people got in boats, they followed Jesus to Capernaum, and here Jesus confronts their unbelief. Notice what he says in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He's, he's draw, going backwards to the, the feeding of the 5,000, and he's saying, look, that, that represented a spiritual reality, that I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And we discussed several weeks ago how this is one of the great I am statements of John's gospel. Remember, I am is the divine name of God that God revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. So, by saying this, Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms that He is God. I am. And not only is He God, He is the God who satisfies the needs of the human soul. I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, because Jesus satisfies the desires of the soul. And that's the great problem right now in America. It's that souls are empty. People are alienated from God. People are living in the domain of darkness. People are living without the knowledge of the truth of the gospel, and Jesus Christ is America's only hope the bread of life. He's the only help. There's no other name given among men by which you can be saved. No other name. There's no other hope. There's not a political answer. There's not an economic answer. There's not an answer from the CDC. The answer is right here. Jesus is the bread of life. Now, here's the problem. People don't believe that and neither did these false disciples. Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Isn't that remarkable? 
we often think, oh, if I could only see Jesus, if I could only encounter Him on the Sea of Galilee, if I could only just see that woman reach out and touch His garment and be healed, then I would really believe. No, you wouldn't. Because these people saw all that. They still didn't believe. Isn't that remarkable? So this is the problem. Unbelief. Why do people not come to Jesus? What does Jesus do with this? How does Jesus deal with this? This is the end of His Galilean ministry. He's been ministering for almost two years, healing people, preaching the gospel, and yet here He is at the end dealing with unbelief. How does Jesus explain this? Well, He explains this by teaching the principle of sovereignty and security. I want you to write next to verse 37 in your Bible, principle of sovereignty and security. This is Jesus' answer to the question of unbelief, and we'll get back to that momentarily, but I want to teach you this principle. Look at verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This verse is very important. It's the linchpin verse for the next 11 verses that follow. So the next 11 verses really are an explanation of this one verse, this one principle that Jesus is teaching. And what Jesus is saying is that you need to understand the role of God's sovereignty in salvation because then you can understand your security as a believer. So here's the principle of sovereignty and security. Here it is. Because salvation begins with the divine sovereignty of God, the believer's salvation is always secured by God. Okay? Because the believer's salvation begins with the divine sovereignty of God. The believer's salvation is always secured by God because salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. That's what Jonah says, Jonah 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord. You can see this in verse 37. Look at verse 37. This is just a broad overview of verse 37. Look how God's sovereign work sandwiches our responsibility to believe. So first, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Notice this work of God the Father. God sovereignly gives some people to the Son. Then, right in the middle, is our responsibility to believe, to come to Jesus. He says, uh, they will come to me, and whoever comes to me. That's, that's what we do in salvation. But then notice that Jesus puts that right in between what he does at the end. He says, I will never cast out. God's sovereignty is what is attributed to beginning our salvation, and God's sovereignty is what keeps us from losing our salvation. It's literally a sovereign sandwich. You see that? God's sovereignty, our belief, God's sovereignty there at the end and keeping us from falling away from the faith. 
So here's another way of stating the principle. Because salvation begins with God's divine choice, we can be sure that it ends with God's protective care. Because salvation begins, I'm going to use, use a, a, a word that often sends Christians running scared. Because salvation begins with divine predestination, we have the assurance of divine preservation. But friends, this is how we know that we have eternal security. This is how we know that we have eternal security, because of the sovereign work of God. This is Paul's answer in Philippians 1.6. Listen, he says, and I am sure of this. He's sure of eternal security. Why? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So God began the good work, and because God began the good work, Paul says, I am sure that God will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the same principle, that God sovereignly begins the work of salvation, and therefore God will sovereignly bring that work to completion. God is the one who keeps you saved. That's why you don't lose your salvation. That's why you don't wake up tomorrow morning and renounce Christ, because if you are a true believer, it's because God saved you. And because God saved you, God keeps you saved. Therefore, all of salvation is really of grace. It's all of grace. Your salvation in the future is of grace, because Jesus keeps you secure. That's the the logic that Paul uses, that's the logic that Jesus is using here. Now, let me flesh out each of these terms for you. Look at that phrase, all that the Father gives me, at the beginning of verse 37. Jesus is teaching here the doctrine of sovereign election. Elect means choice or to choose. The idea is this, that before the foundation of the world, God chose some of humanity to be saved by Christ's work of redemption without any reference to their merit. So, it would be all of grace. When I first heard this doctrine, I was on a, a youth trip. I remember I was riding in the youth van in, uh, in high school, and another student asked our, our youth pastor, they said, do you believe in sovereign election or predestination? And that caught my attention. I said, surely he's going to say no. I never heard of this. Surely he's going to say no, right? John 3.16, whosoever believes in him shall not perish. Surely he's going to say no. And I remember what he said. He said, I do. And, and that stunned me. And that sent me on a biblical exercise. And I said, well, I need to go and study the Scriptures and understand what the Bible says about this. Why does he believe this? And what I discovered is, is this. The Bible teaches, one, that we are responsible to believe. You see that over and over in Scripture but two, that God sovereignly chooses some to believe. 
that also is clear in Scripture. And I, and I want to show you this. I just wanted, want to show you some of the verses that I read in this exploration. I want you to turn to the right to John chapter 15, verse 16. Just We're going to do a little Bible sword drill here. John 15, 16. Look what Jesus says. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Whoa, that got my attention. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Keep turning to the right. We're going to skip Romans. A lot of verses in Romans reference this, but I want you to turn to, Ro- to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 27, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Notice this emphasis on God's choice. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. What's the purpose of this? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, you can't boast in the fact that you're a Christian. You can't say, well, the reason why I'm a believer and my sister's not or my friend's not is because I was more virtuous than they were or I was smarter than they were. No. Paul's saying, God shows what is, it's actually the opposite. You're, you're, you're a Christian because God chooses the weak. God chooses the humble of the world to shame the wise, the strong. Listen to what John Newton said. John Newton is the one who wrote Amazing Grace. He said this, I can see no reason why the Lord singled me out for mercy but this, that so it seemed good to him unless it was to show by one astonishing instance that with him nothing is impossible. So God singled me out for mercy to show his lavishness and his grace. I want you to keep turning to the right. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, even as He chose us in Him. When did He do this? Before the foundation of the world. In this election, He says, is to holiness, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Isn't that remarkable? That if you're a believer, God had you in mind, you personally in mind, before the foundation of the world, and chose you to be holy and blameless in God's sight, and that God began to orchestrate the wheels of redemption in motion to bring that about. One more verse, and we could, we could cite many others, but I want you to turn to the right one more time to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. Paul says, but we 
ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Why? Why do we give thanks to God for the fact that these Thessalonians are Christians? Look what he says. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So, what the Bible teaches, what Paul teaches, I found, what Jesus teaches over and over and over again, is this work of God before the foundation of the world to choose some for salvation. And, and what Jesus is saying here is that God chooses these people to be saved, and that when Jesus came, His mission was certain because God gives these people to Jesus to save and to keep as a gift. So, just turn back to John 6 and jot down these verses that I'm going to, to read to you. These are all from John's gospel. I'm not going to have you turn to these verses, but jot down these verses that I'm going to give to you. First, John 10:29. Jesus says, my Father who has given them to me, talking about the people who are saved, is greater than all. Jesus says in John 17, 2, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. John 18, 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So, Jesus is saying it's this sovereign act of God which ultimately leads to our faith. And this is what Luke records as well in the book of Acts. He says in Acts 13, 48, that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed that those that God chose certainly come to Jesus in faith. And what that means is that Jesus' mission in this world wasn't a hypothetical mission of, I hope some people will be saved. It was a mission of certainty with a guarantee. You, you see this? A guarantee that all that the Father chose will come to Him. It was a guarantee. Now, does this negate human responsibility? Does this mean that we do nothing in salvation? No. We believe in sovereign election, not fatalism. Right? That's what Jesus says. He says, all those that the Father gives me, look back at verse 37, what happens? They come to me. And that's always the imperative that Jesus gives. It's never make sure that, that you're chosen. It's always believe in me. Come to me and believe in me. Don't worry whether you are chosen by God. Worry about whether or not you have actually believed in the Son of God. And that's why the offer throughout John's gospel is whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
It's a general offer. It's always come to me, believe in me, because that is our responsibility. So the question that we have to grapple with is, have we believed or have we not believed? That's the question that we are to ask ourselves. But Jesus says, look, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And there's his sovereignty. He says, if you do come to me, you need to know this. I will never cast you out. That word for cast out is the Greek word ekbalo. Think of the picture of somebody throwing a shot put. Have you ever been to a track meet and seen somebody just, just launch a shot put? That's the picture. It's, it's throwing something out. Throwing, like if you're fishing and that snake drops in the boat, it's throwing that snake out. Jesus says, if you come to me, I will never cast you out. I will never uh, propel you away. Now, one of the interesting things, I'll just say this parenthetically, throughout the history of the church, those who have de denied God's sovereignty in salvation on the front end have denied eternal security on the back end. Because here, here's, the logic is consistent, because if you believe that you come to faith strictly on your own free will apart from the grace of God, then it makes sense that you can leave that faith on your own free will apart from the grace of God. So I love John Wesley. I love John Wesley. I, I love reading sermons of John Wesley. But John Wesley taught that you can lose your salvation. And the reason he taught that is because he denied the sovereignty of God on the front end of salvation. And many of the Methodist uh, since then have followed Wesley's teaching. Many Baptists, I go uh, preach in Ukraine, they all believe that you can lose your salvation because they deny this principle of sovereignty and security. So, there it is. Now, here's the question, going, getting back into the text. Why is Jesus saying this? Why is Jesus articulating this principle? Remember the context. What happened in verse 36? Jesus says, they don't believe. They don't believe. What Jesus is doing is giving an explanation of why his ministry is not a failure. It's like he's encouraging himself. He's reminding himself of this truth, of this principle, that salvation and faith is ultimately due to the sovereignty of God. Listen to what A.W. Pink said on this. He said, was he then disheartened? Far from it. And why not? Ah, mark how the Son of God, here the lowly servant of Jehovah, encourages himself. He immediately adds, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. What a lesson is this for every under-shepherd. Here is the true haven of rest for the heart of every Christ worker. Your message may be slighted by the crowd, and as you see how many there are who believe not, it may appear that your labor is in vain. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His." 2 Timothy 2.19, 
The eternal purpose of the Almighty cannot fail. The sovereign will of the Lord Most High cannot be frustrated. All, every one that the Father gave to the Son before the foundation of the world shall come to Him. The devil himself cannot keep one of them away. Do you see how Jesus is, is encouraging Himself? He's saying, look, my ministry, even though all these people have rejected me, my ministry is not a failure because it's all according to the sovereignty of God. My responsibility as an evangelist is to be faithful, to preach the gospel. Spurgeon said, I assume everybody that I preach to is elect because God hasn't written an E on their back. I assume that they're all elect, but I preach the gospel and then I leave those results to God. I heard Tommy Nelson say one time, I preach the gospel, and then I go to Dairy Queen and eat a blizzard. And I know that God is going to bring the desired results about. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, numerically, you look at my ministry, you might say it's a failure, but with God, it's not a failure. Because God is going to bring the people that are His to Himself. Make sense? So that's the principle. Now, look how Jesus supports it. I want you to write next to verse 38 in the margin of your Bible, divine unity. Divine unity. Why does this principle of sovereignty and security hold fast? It's because of the divine unity of the Trinity, that the three persons of the Trinity have one divine will. Now, when Jesus became a man, how many wills did he have? Two. He had a human will and a divine will because he's truly man and truly God. Now, when, when Jesus says over and over again, not my will, but your will be done, what he's saying is, I am submitting my human will to the one divine will of God. Make sense? Now, look at verse 38. Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven. That's a reference to deity, that he has preexisted his human birth. He says, not to do my own will, that's his human will, but the will of him who sent me, the divine will. His joy as the God-man is to carry out the Father's will. He said previously in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He said in John 5.30, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying that he has a pleasure in carrying out the Father's will. And what is that will? Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me. Notice this emphasis on security, our eternal security as the believer, that I should lose nothing. Jesus will not lose a single person of all that He, who's that? The Father has given me. I will not lose one that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus says, I will lose nothing, and I will raise up every single person the Father has given me on the last day. They will inherit a resurrection body and live with me forever and ever in the new heavens and new earth. He will lose not one. Jesus says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, listen, and they will never perish, never. If you have eternal life, you will never perish. And listen to what Jesus says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
No one will snatch them out of, out of my hand. That's the comfort of the believer. I heard John MacArthur say one time, if I could lose my salvation, I would. Because if it was up to me, I don't know where I'd be in five years. But my confidence isn't in myself. shouldn't be in yourself. Our confidence is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That He holds you safely and secure in your hand, in His hand. So, when you're on your deathbed, this is the implication. This is Jesus' promise. This is Jesus' promise. Listen to these words. Just close your eyes and think about these words. I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. How comforting is that? That Jesus says, I will lose nothing. I will lose none of you, but I will raise you up on that last day. That is true security. That is sovereign security of our Lord Jesus Christ. He elaborates further in verse 40. Look at verse 40. He says, this, this time he's emphasizing the human responsibility side of salvation. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and again, same clause, and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice the verb tense of have eternal life. Is that future, past, or present? What is it? Present tense. Eternal life is something that the believer has now. Have eternal life. Now, if you possess eternal life, can you lose eternal life? No, because then it wouldn't be eternal. So, if you know right now that you possess eternal life, if you know that you've believed, Jesus says you can know that you possess that eternal life. And if you have that eternal life, you can never lose it. And Jesus says again, I will raise you up on the last day. This is assured because Jesus is saying that the Son carries out the Father's decreed will. The Father chooses us for salvation. The Son purchases, purchases us and keeps us for salvation. And then we'll see in a minute what the Holy Spirit does in this work. But first, I want you to look now at verse 41 and see the mass rejection. Right next to verse 41, mass rejection. The people reject Jesus. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. One of the interesting things is that John refers to the crowd now as the Jews. And I think the reason why he does this is because he wants you to think about the Jews in the wilderness with Moses. And he actually uses the same word, it's the Greek word ganguzo, which is translated as grumbled or murmured. You can just kind of hear 
it, it, you can just kind of hear the sound of that. It sounds like people grumbling. Uh, that same word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the murmuring against Moses in the wilderness. So, he, there's a drawing back to that moment, and, and that's the, the picture that John wants you to see. And what these people have a problem with is, look at verse 41. Here's the statement that they have a problem with. When Jesus says, I am the bread, that divine statement, that came down from heaven, because that's a statement of deity, that He came down from heaven, that He's of God. Look at their response in verse 42. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? So, they're saying, look, we, we know this guy's parents. How, how, can, how can he now say, I have come down from heaven? That's their, that's their argument. And obviously, they had no understanding of the virgin conception. They had no understanding that God the Holy Spirit had come upon Mary's womb and created in her womb perfect deity with perfect humanity. They understand none of that, and so they reject Jesus' deity. Look at Jesus' response in verse 43. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Same Greek word, ganguzo. Stop it. Stop complaining. Stop murmuring. Now, here's what I think is really interesting. At this point, my, my natural inclination would be, if I'm in Jesus' shoes, to explain the virgin birth, because that's what they're asking about. I would say, well, look, here's what you need to understand. I, I wasn't born with an earthly father, I was born of the heavenly father through the Holy Spirit. That's what I would say. Jesus doesn't do that because Jesus understands this, that the root issue here is not just a matter of head knowledge, but the root issue is a matter of the heart. It's a spiritual problem in the soul. By the way, the same problem that we're facing right now in our country. And Jesus' answer to this question is irresistible grace. I want you to write irresistible grace next to verse 44. So, so far, Jesus laid out the principle that we saw of sovereignty and security in verse 37. Then He laid out the divine unity, which supports it. We've seen the mass rejection of the Jews, and now Jesus lays out, finally, His answer to all of this this unbelief. And he says, look, here's what you need to pray for. Here's what you need to know. You need to know irresistible grace. That's the issue. The issue is, is that their minds are opposed to God. Their affections are opposed to God. Their wills are opposed to God. And so, what needs to happen is an internal recalibration of the soul. Their minds need to be opened. Their affections need to be stirred. Their wills need to be uh, drawn to God. And that's true not just of them, that's true of every single person born this side of Adam. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 7. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Now, listen to, to how how powerful this is. Indeed, it cannot. The carnal mind will not submit to God, 
period. Period. So this gives you clarification on where people are in the world. It's not that people are born good. It's not even that people are born neutral. It's that people are born, look at Paul's language, hostile to God. He's going to say elsewhere, enemies of God, walking contrary to God. Paul says in Romans 3.10, he says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. Is that some understand and some seek for God? No. No one. There's not a single person that is born naturally a God-seeker. And that is why there is a necessity of divine grace. Because apart from divine grace, I would still be an enemy of God. And apart from divine grace, you would still be an enemy of God. This principle explains why there's so much unbelief in the world. Have you ever wondered this, okay? Why is there so much unbelief? Why is there so much darkness this side of the cross? Why? Why is there so much evil in the world? Why? Why so much depravity? Because that's who we are. That's who you were. You were born depraved. It's not that if you're a Christian that you were born any better than anybody else. You were born hostile to God. And so what Jesus says here, and this is so important that you understand, is that there is a necessity of a work of divine grace by the Holy Spirit in your heart, even for you to believe. Because do you remember, coming to Christ is synonymous with belief. That's how Jesus is using that. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me. He's saying no one can believe in me. No one can come to me unless, unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see that work of grace that the Holy Spirit does from God the Father? And then Jesus says again, and I will raise him up on the last day. We really need to understand this word draw because I think it will help clarify what this grace means and what this grace looks like. The Greek word is elkuo, and what this word was used to describe was a bucket being raised from a well, okay? A bucket is drawn from a well. Now, let me ask you a question. How much work does a bucket do in getting up from the bottom of the well? Not much work, does it? Here's how the word is used in the New Testament. Same word John uses in John 21.6 to describe the apostles drawing the net of fish into the boat. Same word is used in John 18.10 to describe Peter drawing the sword from its sheath to cut off Malchus's ear. It's the same word that Luke uses in Acts 16.19 to describe Paul and Silas being dragged into the marketplace, El Cuo. They were El Cuo. They were dragged into the Agora, into the marketplace before the rulers. So, here's Jesus' point. 
is that God the Holy Spirit must awaken lost sinners from their slumber and draw them to faith. And you instinctively know this because what do we do for lost people in our lives? We pray for them, right? We pray for lost people. And what's our prayer? God, awaken this person to the truth so that they may believe and be saved. God, would you save this person? God, work in their lives. So what God does is He begins to do this work of drawing, and here's what it looks like. First, God brings the law of God somehow into our life, and we begin to feel conviction over our sin. All of a sudden, one day, you're like, oh man, I feel guilty over that. What is that? Well, it's God the Holy Spirit beginning to convict you. And then you hear the truth. Maybe you go to a Billy Graham crusade or something, and you hear the truth, and an angst begins to stir up in your soul. And you're like, oh my goodness, I realize that I am a sinner and that I will be in judgment, that I will go to hell in my sin. God, what am I to do? Do you remember Peter preaching at Pentecost? And it says that they were cut to the heart, and they say, what must we do to be saved? That's God the Holy Spirit working to bring that angst about. And then what God does is He miraculously opens our eyes to the truth. Look at verse 45. Jesus says this, look, here's what you need to know. It is written in the prophets, and He's talking here about those that are being drawn He says, and they will all be taught by God. All that are drawn by God, those people will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So, God, there he's quoting, it's, it's in parentheses because he's quoting Isaiah 54, 13, describing the teaching work that God does in the soul. And that, my friends, is the only reason why anyone ever comes to understand and consent to the truth of the gospel is because God Himself teaches you. And that's why every act of salvation is a divine miracle. Every act of salvation is a divine miracle. It is a work of God. I can't, I can't engineer somebody's salvation. I can't. No one can. Because God Himself must teach each and every person, and convict them and bring them to a knowledge of the truth. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.12. He says, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You can share the gospel with a person over and over and over again, and they reject it, reject it, reject it, reject it, and then maybe it's like the 50th time, and they believe what was the difference in that moment? God opened their eyes to the truth. God taught them. And Jesus clarifies this because you're like, oh, what do you mean God, God teaches? Well, Jesus clarifies. Look at verse 46. He's saying, look, not, not that anyone has seen the Father. He says, I've seen God. I've, I was with God. I've seen the Father. He's not saying that God Himself comes and teaches you, and and you see God the Father, but he's saying God the Father does this work experientially in our hearts in the power of the Holy Spirit. He brings this knowledge of the gospel and the identity of Christ to us, which leads to faith. But for this reason, this is why faith is 
a work of grace and not of works. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 2? He says, for by grace you have been, been saved, and this is not of works. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. This is why, because God is the one who enables us to believe through this irresistible grace. And this is lastly, after you see the truth, after you've been convicted, after you have this angst in your soul, this is what follows, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. There it is, so simply, so elementary clear that whoever believes in Jesus has, present tense, eternal life forever and ever. And it's completely secure, completely secure. Why? Because it's secure in the sovereign hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, God, the Father, if you're a believer, you need to know this. He sovereignly chose you before the foundation of the world. God, the Holy Spirit, sovereignly drew you to the gospel. Open your eyes to the truth. And Jesus sovereignly keeps you in His hand so that your salvation is secure forever and ever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we praise You. We worship You, Lord, because this stirs our affections for You. We've seen, Lord, just the power and the majesty of Your grace in our life, and that that it is this grace which is the foundation of our assurance, of our security, that we know that we will stay saved forever because You have sovereignly done this work. And what a work it is in our lives. It is a work of transformation that brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Your beloved Son, a work of transformation in the, heart, in the heart that opened our eyes to the truth, a work of transformation that drew us, a work of transformation that brought the new birth to us. So, Lord, we can say joyfully that it is all of grace and all for Your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.